We will continue this morning in our study in the Gospel of John. We're going to continue to be in John chapter 12 today, a passage that many of us are familiar with. We probably have heard a sermon on it every year for who knows how long, because it's about Palm Sunday and about the welcoming of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem in the last week of his life. So, um, But... Um, I think there's some interesting things in it that we see from John's perspective here, that things he leaves out, things he includes. So let's go ahead and pray as we jump into it this morning. Father, we ask that you would stir the faith of our souls. As we study this well-known passage, but a passage that we know is meant to breathe life into us. So may your spirit do so this morning. By your word, may you reveal to us who you are, who Jesus is, and how you want us to respond in obedience by faith. Help our minds and our hearts to be ready to receive your word this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We often have a line of celebration for significant moments in life. It could be that the school has a sports team that's being sent off or welcomed home from playing in a state championship. It might be the line of congratulations that happen after a couple gets married. It could even be a parade of cars that happens on the last day of school, right, for the seniors who come through town. These celebrations are familiar to us, just as they were for the people during Jesus' day. Because this morning we see this procession for Jesus, in light, though, of what he did with Lazarus. It's flowing out of that. These Jews believe this is their Messiah. This is their king. But rather than sending him off to victory over Rome like they hoped for, this king is actually going to have triumph triumph through his own death. As we look at it today, we will see that this is not the king that they had hoped for, but he's actually even better. Although, we will find out that not many of the Jews end up believing he is better. So let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, upon first glance at this passage, it's abundantly clear that this crowd views Jesus as king. The Jews haven't had a king for hundreds of years at this point. Not since they were exiled back in the Old Testament by Assyria and Babylon, the northern and southern kingdoms. And yet here they are with Jesus hundreds of years later saying, There's our king, right? Verse 13, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they're even crying out that this king is going to save them and that he is the king of Israel. But the question that remains is your first point in the outline. What kind of king? Does their concept of king match with what Jesus is about to do? Does the salvation that they're crying out for line up with the salvation that Jesus is about to provide to them? Now, Israel has had its ups and downs with kings, right? If you trace back throughout the Old Testament, originally Israel had no king, right? They were in Egypt, and who led them out? Moses, but by who? God led them out, and then God led them through the wilderness, And right before they're about to enter into the promised land, God tells them in Deuteronomy, there's going to come a time to set up a king. And this is, there's some particular things you need to keep a lookout for when you go to set it up. But it's not because God wants them to have a king. It's because God already knows how hard their hearts are going to be and they're going to ask for a king. So then we go through Joshua, right? And they defeat all these nations around them as they go into the promised land. And then we have this period of time, Judges, where it's repeated over and over that Israel had no king. It's not because they didn't have anybody to follow. It's that they refused to follow God. Which then makes sense now as we get into 1 Samuel. And what happens? Israel says, give us a king like all the other nations have. So what do they get? Saul, who's a king just like all the other nations have. But then David becomes king after Saul. And what happens with David is God takes this idea of king that they weren't supposed to follow, and he redeems it. Because God comes to David, who's a faithful man, though he does make mistakes, he comes to David and he says, I promise you that through your offspring, your throne will be an everlasting one. It will go on forever. So now it's not just, oh, well, who's going to be king? It's David has an offspring that's going to be king forever. It's going to continue on and on and on. But then what happens? Well, right after David's son Solomon is king, after he's done, now the kingdom splits. Right? You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. One of the kingdoms has David's offspring as a king. The other one doesn't. But eventually what happens is both of those kingdoms end up in exile because they continue to commit idolatry. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all of these nations, empires, reign over Israel. Israel has no king except the king of another nation for all these years. But there's this element of hope still, right? That 
Well, God promised David that he's going to have an offspring whose throne is going to last forever. So we have hope that there is a king that's going to come someday. And in fact, what they say here in verse 13 is actually a somewhat of a quote from Psalm 118 as one of their songs that they would have sung. Psalm 118, just verse 25 and 26. Save us, Hosanna, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This was their anticipation that there was one who was going to come in the name of the Lord and was going to save them. And now Jesus comes. And this is what they're crying out to him, is this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one who's going to save us. And then we see even more explained in the prophet Zechariah, who's quoted here, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Think of all that's encompassed in this coming king. Right? There's salvation, there's righteousness, there's Uh, peace that goes to the nations. There's a rule that goes to the ends of the earth. But we can understand maybe how Israel misinterpreted this, right? I mean, he says, I'm going to cut off the bows and the war horse, right? So they take it with a very political mindset. Salvation, peace, rule, all can be understood in a political sense as well as in a spiritual sense. But what I want us to do is focus in here on what does Jesus make a point of doing from this Zechariah chapter 9 passage. Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Notice what Jesus doesn't say and what John doesn't include quoted from Zechariah chapter 9. It doesn't say anything about the nations, about ruling over the world or all the political enemies that they have. What does Jesus do? Finds a donkey. That's not what the military king is supposed to do, Right? The military king rides a massive war horse in order to ride into battle, but Jesus rides a colt. Why? What did Zechariah also include about riding on the colt? Your king comes humble and riding on a donkey. The very thing that John emphasizes about what Jesus did is the very thing the entire crowd misses. 
Jesus is intentionally making a point here that he is the king that Zechariah spoke of. He is the savior. He is the one coming in the name of the Lord. He is bringing salvation, peace to the nations, rule to the ends of the earth, but not in the way that they're expecting him to. In his entrance here as king, he isn't going to lead some military revolt against Rome. He's not going to take a sword to the nations. He's not going to have this Israel-focused domination over the rest of the world. But instead, he comes in gentleness, in humility. He enters as a completely contrary kind of king than what they were expecting or hoping for. So it's important for ourselves just to take a moment and ask ourselves the same question. A whole lot of people attend church. A whole lot of people call themselves Christians. A whole lot of people say Jesus is king. But what kind of king? Your answer to that question genuinely matters. Have you ever dealt with a child that's hungry? And then you ask them, what do you want to eat? And you get the answer, food. Now, if you go out to the kitchen and grab them a stalk of salary and bring it back, you're going to find out real quick if they really just wanted food or not, right? You find out real quick that the details actually matter in a much greater way than food. It matters what kind of king we're claiming Jesus is. As we continue in the passage and throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, we find out that Jesus ends up being not the king that Israel or even his own disciples at this point in time expected to have. This is a king who humbles himself. This is a king that, your second point, the king that saves by dying. Displaying his humility by riding on the colt is just the beginning of how humble we find out Jesus really is. He's going to become so humble that he ends up being obedient to his father, even to the point of death on a cross. No greater humility than that. And no greater contradiction than what they expected than that. The crowd wants him to go slaughter the nations, and instead Jesus saves by slaughtering himself. Look how John writes about when he gained this understanding of what Jesus was really doing. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So John says the disciples didn't even grasp what Jesus was doing here yet. But it wasn't until Jesus was glorified that he began to comprehend what all of this meant. So that leaves us with the question of when is Jesus glorified? Right? Our automatic assumption might be the resurrection, right? Or it might be when Jesus ascends into heaven later. And I think we do ultimately see glory in that, but that's not where Jesus ends up pointing to. If you just jump ahead to, not this week's, but the next passage we'll look at in verse 23, look what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
The hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. Then what does he talk about? Death. The only way for Jesus to accomplish what he has been sent for, the only way for his glory is through dying. It is only by death that Jesus, as the king, brings the salvation that Zechariah spoke of. It's only by his death that he brings the peace to the nations that he wrote about. It's only by his death that we see him end up ruling to the ends of the earth. It's an entirely different way than some bloody war with Rome. And the reason, the reason why Jesus has to die in order to bring this kingdom, in order to display himself as king, is because his kingdom is an entirely different one than this world. If you fast forward a little bit just to when Jesus is arrested and he's standing before Pilate, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? What is it that you've done wrong? And I want you to look at how Jesus responds to this in chapter 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. If his kingdom, if him as king, is what all the Jewish people expected it to be, he said, my followers would already be at war. They would already be fighting on my behalf. The point is, if the, if the fight's not happening yet, it's proving that the kingdom I'm talking about is not one of this world. The salvation, then, has to be a salvation not of this world, but a salvation that only happens by the Savior dying. Because it's only by his death that sinners can be made righteous. The problem for Israel is not Rome. The problem for Israel is their own sinful hearts. In fact, if we look back at what Jesus told Nicodemus about the kingdom in chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The greatest need for Israel and for all of human beings is we need to be born Again, we need the Spirit to change our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. We need our souls that are dead in their trespasses to be brought to life. We need our spiritual thirst and hunger to be quenched by the bread of life, the one who calls himself living water. The only way, only way that happens is through our sins being paid for at the cross. And in us sharing with Jesus, our union with Jesus by faith, we also die at the cross. Only by the death of Jesus can we be born again and enter into the kingdom of God. By the Spirit internally breathing life into our souls. 
Donnie, I'm going to pick on you again. Donnie shared a story Wednesday night at our Bible study. And this wasn't like a recent thing, so don't, don't worry about it because it is a health concern thing. But a while back, Donnie was having chest pain, and it got severe enough that he ended up going to the ER, which is abnormal for Donnie to think it's bad enough to go to the ER, right? So kind of a big deal. But the ER tells him it's just indigestion and sends him home. Well, it continues on for a couple more days, and he continues to have this chest pain, so he goes to the doctor's office, and the doctor's office, within minutes of listening to him breathe, says, you have pneumonia. How long has it been going on for? Well, a couple days, and they give him some medicine, and within a week, he's better. Here's the point. It matters whether you're treating the symptoms or the underlying disease. This crowd saw their oppression as the Jewish people, right? That is their symptom. For hundreds of years, they were reigned by other empires, and they wanted their empire back in their hands. But again, their exile was just a symptom of a worse problem, their disobedience. Their disobedience, their rebellious hearts is what caused them to go into exile. Their hearts kept turning to idols rather than God. And my friends, it's the same with us. If we, we have to start viewing our problem with the right eyes if we want to be truly saved from it. Your greatest hindrance in life is not a physical illness. It's not an anger problem. It's not desiring approval from other people. It's not feeling secure by having lots of possessions. Your underlying disease is a rebellious heart. A soul that is dead and seeks after insufficient ways in this world to bring it back to life. The only hope for us is for our heart to change. For us to be born again. And it only happens through Jesus going to the cross. Because not only Jesus is crucified at the cross, but we also are crucified at the cross when we trust in him. As Paul says it this way, right? I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This radically changes the way that we view everything in life. When our greatest problem is not outside of us, but inside of us, it radically changes how we're responding to the world around us and how we respond to Jesus when we call him king. Which brings us here to the final point. In this passage, it's clear that Jesus is being called king. And Jesus is agreeing with that statement. Right? When he gets on the donkey, he's actually saying, yes, I am fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 here. But what John shows us through this passage is the different responses to Jesus as king. We have the religious leaders, we have the crowd, and we have the disciples, all described in different ways. So I want us to last look at the three responses to Jesus as king. And as we look at each of these, take time to consider your own heart. Do any of these three responses sound like how you respond to Jesus when you call him king? First, the most obvious is the hateful response of the religious leaders. Now, we already saw two weeks ago that they had made up their minds that they were going to kill him. 
right? Caiaphas, the high priest, said, it's clearly better that one man dies than the whole nation gets wiped out by Rome. We see a very similar response here in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. As they watch the crowd, even in the next paragraph, they watch Greeks, non-Jewish people, flock to Jesus. These religious leaders realize that they're gaining nothing. So the first response is rejection from self-preservation. It's abundantly clear they reject Jesus as their king. In fact, when they go to put the sign on on the post, right, when Jesus is crucified, they write on it, King of the Jews, and the religious leaders say, no, 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 clarify here, it's the man who claimed to be the king of the Jews, right? They're not even close to being on board with calling Jesus king. But verse 19 gives us some insight on the reason for their rejection. See that you are gaining nothing. It's all about gain to them. What is it that they can gain for themselves? And they look at Jesus and they say, there is nothing to gain in calling him king. In fact, there's nothing to gain in other people calling him king because it's making us lose our influence. It's all about preserving themselves. And it's not all that different today. It may be people who call themselves religious. It may be people who don't. Either way, people recognize that to call Jesus king demands that they lose something that they want to hold on to. These leaders knew that they'd have to sacrifice their entire way of life in order to follow Jesus. And that's not gain for them. Even others, like we said, even watching other people go after Jesus was not gain to them because it was lo- they were losing their jobs, in a sense, if Jesus was the new leader. People who reject Jesus outrightly, even today, do so because they believe there's nothing to gain by submitting to Jesus as king. But then we come to the second response, which is kind of the, the odd one in all three of these, that of the crowd. Now, I put this in its own category because they're clearly not included with the disciples here. And they're clearly not with the religious leaders because the religious leaders see their response as a problem. So I call this excitement from self-preservation. This crowd is genuinely ecstatic about the entrance of Jesus. Right? The response in verse 13 makes that clear. Right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel, they're excited. There's exclamation points there. They're calling him their savior. They're calling him their king. They go out to meet him, waving palm branches in celebration. Jump to verse 17, right? The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Right Now you have those who saw what happened with Lazarus testifying about what Jesus did in raising him from the dead. But then, we find John gives us a hint here in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard, they heard that he had done this sign. 
John explains their motivation to us. The reason they went out is because they heard of this sign that Jesus had done with Lazarus. And we've seen this before, and we've looked back at it a couple times. But let me remind you again of chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, just like the Passover is about to start in Jerusalem here, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But what does Jesus think about this? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. All these people flocking to Jesus, believing in Jesus because of the signs, and Jesus doesn't believe their belief. Jesus doesn't trust their faith because it's based on signs. He knows what's really going on inside of them. So when we come back here to the entrance of Jesus in verse 18, it's that the crowd is coming to Jesus because they heard about this sign that Jesus was doing. Right? We already saw that their excitement of calling him Hosanna and calling him king stems from a faulty view of what the Messiah really is. Right? That they see him as their army captain rather than a dying savior. It just proves that their whole mindset is about preserving their own lives, preserving, preserving themselves from Rome. Right? Well, if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, surely he can kill our enemies at a moment's notice if we want him to. So we shouldn't be surprised when John, if we fast forward later in chapter 12, look what John tells us in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In the midst of all these signs, and even their excitement of Jesus entering, it ends up telling us that they truly did not believe in him. This excitement is short-lived. It's proven to be unbelief. Proven that they don't really have faith when Jesus reveals to them what kind of king he really is. So I said there's three responses to Jesus as king. But what we find out here is this second response, excitement from self-preservation, sooner or later is revealed to really be the first response, which is rejection from self-preservation. This crowd ends up proving that they don't really trust Jesus. That's what John just told us in verse 37. That's what we're going to see when they're all shouting crucify him later in the week. My fear is that many present day churches have a whole lot of people that think their verbal proclamation of Jesus as king automatically proves that they believe in him. That if you come to church every so often, or if on your Facebook profile and your religious beliefs you put Christian, or if you share a verse on Facebook once in a while, then you prove yourself to be an authentic believer in Jesus. But still, even in the midst of doing all those things, you can have an excitement for Jesus that stems from self-preservation. Maybe it's to make a family member happy that you still go to church. Maybe it's to make yourself feel good that you got your dose of spirituality for the month. Or maybe it's because you do know what the Bible teaches about those who are in unbelief and the eternity that awaits them. And you're just trying to preserve your eternity. 
None of those things, though, none of those motivations necessarily prove true faith. Your spouse can call you husband or wife and not actually live like you're the husband or wife. Or your spouse can say, I love you, while still being unfaithful. Your spouse can get excited about seeing you while still not being fully committed to you. To simply call Jesus king, call yourself a Christian, even with small displays of excitement about Jesus, can still easily end up being unbelief. That's what brings us to the third response, which really is only one of two responses if we see how that second one eventually merges still with the first one. When we look at the lives of the disciples, we see that true faith has a drastically different element to it. I call it gazing at his glory. Look at what John says in verse 16. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these. Even the disciples don't understand everything that's going on at this moment. But there is a moment coming soon that all of it becomes abundantly clear to them. What is that moment? The death and resurrection of Christ. But that's not what John calls it here. What does John say that moment is? When Jesus was glorified. Through the death of Christ... The disciples see something about Jesus that the religious leaders and that many of these in the crowd don't see. The glory of Jesus. In fact, John already told this to us from the get-go in chapter 1 about himself and the disciples. Chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us all the way from the beginning of the gospel that him and the disciples have seen the glory of Jesus as the Son, which is also the glory of the Father. Jesus is revealing who the Father is. Don't get lost by the word glory. When we think of glory, we think of this lofty term that we can't really understand. It simply means there's a weightiness to the person. There's a radiance of the person. There's an honor that's due to that person. And this is what Jesus desires for his disciples and for us to see. When Jesus is about to be arrested, he says this really long prayer in John chapter 17. And I want you to hear what Jesus prays for. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, these are his disciples, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants his disciples to be with him. Why? Because he wants them to see his glory. To see him for who he really is. To comprehend the honor and the worship that is due to Jesus. This 
is what happens when somebody is truly saved. When we truly believe in Jesus. All of us enter into this world as sinners and as glory hounds. All of us are seeking for our own glory. And we will give worship to all sorts of things around us if we think it's going to increase our glory in some sense. That's what sin is about. More for ourselves. To be saved, to believe in Jesus, is when this pursuit of self-glory snaps like a twig in our minds and our hearts. The blinders that were once on our eyes that we couldn't see who Jesus really is are now lifted up, and we can actually see who Jesus is. That he is the one who deserves all the glory that we were once seeking for ourselves. And the beauty of who Jesus is is most visibly displayed at his death and resurrection. Or what John calls here, his glorification. It doesn't matter how excited you act about Jesus if you've never had those blinders removed to see Jesus' glory for who he really is and to see the depths of your own ingloriousness, then you don't really believe in him. So brothers and sisters, I'm going to make it short and simple for you. Do you see the glory of the king that saves you by dying for you. It's not about whether you just fear hell and you just want to stay safe, preserve yourself. When the disciples saw Jesus die and saw him resurrected, we saw here it changes everything about the way they viewed history. They looked at everything in their past through that lens now. And seeing Jesus in his glory changes everything that they're going to do for the rest of their lives. Each and every day is different now because they've seen Jesus for who he is. In fact, so many of them end up dying because they've seen this glory. If we don't view our past and our future through the lens of Jesus' glory then we have to ask ourselves, have we really seen his glory? If you haven't seen it, I I would urge you this morning to ask him to remove those blinders for you. That you might finally see Jesus clearly and have your heart swell with worship because of the honor and glory that he is due. May our proclamation of Jesus as king be not just a general proclamation of any king, but may it be a proclamation of Jesus as the king of glory. Let's pray. Father, help us to not be content to only display excitement about Jesus with not seeing the glory of Jesus. Because we know that that excitement is purely based out of self-preservation. Our only hope 
is that the blindness of our hearts would be removed by your grace and that we might see the glory of Jesus. That's our only hope for change in life. That's our only hope for true, faithful obedience to you. Is that we see the glory of who you are. And then we pursue that glory for all of our days. Father, may we not May we not for one more day live casual Christian lives. Help us to realize there is no such thing but lives that are only in pursuit of your kingdom and your glory because we've seen you for who you are all because by your spirit you've removed our blindness. We thank you that you've sent Jesus to die and be resurrected for us. Help us to see the glory in his death and resurrection and help us also to share in his death and resurrection. May we every day wake up and die to ourselves so that we might live for you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As they come up for the last song, we're going to sing Be Thou My Vision, which we're going to sing verses 1, 3, and 4, but verse 3 at the end of it has this this phrase, which verses 3 and 4 both talk about kind of royalty and king and ruler.